Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? Welcome to yet another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. This is podcast number 146, if you've been counting. And on this episode, we are welcoming a singer extraordinaire. Now, this interview was done a couple of years back. It was broadcast on the radio. It was also transcribed and published in La Revista magazine, which is an international bilingual publication. You can find the article at larevista.ro. It centers on the singing career of Robert Davi. Robert Davi released an album back in 2011. It was called Davi Sings Sinatra on the Road to Romance, produced by the legendary Phil Ramone. And a lot of you know Robert Davi as the very versatile actor that he is. He's done a great variety of different movies. To add to the story of the whole Sinatra thing, his motion picture beginning was Contract on Cherry Street, which starred Frank Sinatra. It's an interesting little romance there. He's worked with everyone from Clint Eastwood, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Marlon Brando, Bruce Willis. I mean, you could keep on going. But the number of movies that he's done, when you mention Robert Davi, it seems like everybody has a different movie that they remember him from, whether it's Die Hard, for a lot of people, they remember him as the Fratelli brother in The Goonies. But then, for James Bond fans, there's License to Kill, where he played the Bond villain, Franz Sanchez. Then, of course, for other people, there would be, if they wanted to admit it, Showgirls. He played the strip club manager. I'm someone who will admit to seeing that movie. I don't have a problem with that. But then, there's something else I'd like to call your attention to. The music video for Bob Dylan's song, The Night They Called It A Day, which was originally recorded by Frank Sinatra. Robert Davi played the character in that, and it's really spectacular if you haven't seen it. Despite all these movies, in my heart and mind, when I think of Robert Davi, I think of him as a singer. I can remember getting that album, On the Road to Romance, putting the disc into my player, and from the very first moments of hearing him sing, I thought, wow. And I've seen him in concert. As a matter of fact, it was on the 100th birthday of Frank Sinatra, December 12th, 2015. He was at the Fox Theater at the Foxwoods Resort in Mashantucket, Connecticut. He was amazing. And that night is a night that I'll never forget for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> Robert Davi has done a lot of different things, as I mentioned. He's also a published writer. He's written on various topics, from political to current events. You've probably seen his name on a few online news publications for things that he's written. He's someone who's not afraid to share his point of view. He's outspoken, to say the least. He's also spent some time as a radio host, and I have to admit, he was very, very compelling. But the attention to Robert Davi these days has been about this new documentary. It's out now. It's called Davi's Way. 
and it chronicles Robert Davi's quest to honor Frank Sinatra's iconic main event, which was a thing that Frank Sinatra did at Madison Square Garden, October 13, 1974. And it was where Frank Sinatra did this thing in the boxing ring, probably Frank Sinatra's most famous live album. The documentary was directed by Tom Donahue, and I thought that I would just play the trailer for you all now. in his three-decade acting career. Robert Davi is best known for playing a tough guy. Did you know that Robert Davi's first love is actually singing? He will be releasing his first record, Davi Sings Sinatra on the Road to Romance. An accomplished jazz Davi is the closest thing I've heard to Sinatra skills. He made the whole night feel like Frank was there. New York City, October 13th, 1974. Did you ever see the concert at Madison Square Garden called The Main Event? Of course. And I would like to recreate that night in the boxing room. You know what I mean? Probably get you an assistant. An assistant? Just communicate with people. I'm really very self-sufficient. I'm not high maintenance at all. This wonderful elements and exciting elements of being around Davi. He's a member of the actor's studio. Every venue, I like to have a humidifier. I like Earl Grey with honey. If I have a hat on, it comes off. Leave it on for today, because I know you haven't quaffed your hair. I don't want this angle, ever. Is there enough light underneath? Get me a filter. You gotta like me like a girl. Acting, I've compromised. But I will not compromise the music. The music I will not compromise. Uh... I need you to help with maybe getting somebody. Busta Rhymes. Do you know any females? What? Adele? P. Diddy, Lord. You know this girl, Lord? I'm told Kid Rock might do it. I think we can put up a Frank and Dean kind of a piece together. <laughs> I know we can. I did a little Dean, but I don't know about Frank. Justin Timberlake, Jay-Z. Come on, bro, same boat. But it has to be in April, for budget reasons. I don't know how to put all that together by Any April. You cannot make an event in two fucking weeks. You can make a bad independent fucking movie in two weeks. Right. I should have said, I can't do this, no. And I am thrilled introduce my dear friend, Robert Darby and the event. Yeah, fellas, sit down and enjoy the music, okay? I'm up here now. You're gonna have to get the hook. The battery died. Unbelievable. The documentary looks compelling, and I'm looking forward to seeing it soon. And I'm going to do my best for you all to get Robert Davi back on the Paul Leslie Hour podcast edition. Enjoy the first interview with Robert Davi, taped back in 2014. I'm ready, baby. The American Songbook remains one of the greatest exports to come from the United States. The music and lyric of Jimmy Van Heusen, Irvin Drake, Harold Arlen, Johnny Mercer... Rodgers and Hammerstein, and so many others were interpreted by Frank Sinatra, who many would call the greatest entertainer who ever lived. A flame can burn forever as long as a torch is passed. Right now, we speak to a man whose love for singing this music is a passion indeed. He is known to many as an actor, but his recorded album and concert performance, Davi Sings Sinatra, has gained great acclaim. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Mr. Robert Davi. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, thank you for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. I think most stories are best from the beginning. I want you to take us into your house when you were growing up. If we were to be not seen, but we could hear, what would we hear? Well, you'd hear me on the lap of my grandmother, Nicolina Rulo, my mother's mother, who used to sing at the San Carlo Opera in Naples, singing the Italian popolare, canzone, canzone popolare. You'd hear the sounds from my basement on a wind-up record player on 78 shellac records of Caruso, Gigli, Dito Rufo, Galacorci, Sinatra. You'd hear those. You'd hear the you hear a record player being played with the, 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 the great American songbook playing in the background, as well as the, the opera. You hear the sounds of music, uh, both the Italian and the great American songbook, which I call the Shakespeare of America now. And the voice, of course, of, the, of Sinatra. You heard Dean Martin, you heard Perry Como, you heard Jerry Vale, you heard Ginny Roselli, you heard uh, uh, all these great singers. But primarily, and the one that affected me the most, was Sinatra. In an Italian household, I say, Paul, there were two figures. Uh, Sinatra, the Pope and Sinatra, and not necessarily in that order. <laughs> now, if you had told your parents when you were very, very young, I want to be a singer, professionally, was that something that was respected? Well, like I said, my grandmother had, had a thing where she sang. It was respected immensely, but it was a fear. My dad had flirted with wanting to be a singer for a little while. He even came out to Hollywood after he was in the Navy during World War II. His ship was torpedoed. He came out to California, was a volunteer fireman, and was trying to break into the business in some way, from what I gathered. He never spoke about it a lot. But he was a guy that uh, was a hardworking guy, worked three jobs, blue-collar man, Sicilian, quiet guy, much like much like I think it's funny, his birthday is the same day as Sinatra's. And I think it was much like Marty Sinatra, quiet Sicilian, and you had a mother who was a, a much more forceful figure in, in, the, in the family. So the dream of wanting to be a, a, a singer or actor was, I think they were frightened for me trying that. While it was encouraged by, by teachers in school, though, and awards that I had won. But there was a fear for me. Can you remember a favorite track from Sinatra from when you were just young? You know, there were so many favorite, there were so many wonderful tracks, so many different, they, it's a cacophony of sound. I don't have one that I can say. This is a definitive. I can say, perhaps, because it was also a movie that affected everybody so much, I think, that Joker is Wild, the song that, of course, by Jimmy Van Usen and Sammy Kahn, that Sinatra had, had them write for that movie all the way, which was my mom's favorite song and my dad's favorite song, one of their favorite songs. So I think that song had a uh, an echoing youth, because I remember watching television and the uh, the black and white. My, my, my bedroom was also the living room, and we had a black and white TV set. And my mom would be up late at night watching those those films, and that's where you know learned about Bogart and all those characters, Lee Marvin and uh, you know Edward G. Robinson and Johnny Garfield and of course Sinatra, and watching The Joker is Wild and being affected by the music and that story. I think all the way is one of them that that, that has an has an echo, but they all do because they were played so often. 
We're talking with singer Robert Davi. Can you recall your first public performance? How did that make you feel? As a singer or as an actor? As a singer, your first time singing for an audience. That that had to have happened in high school. The first time was probably in high school. They found out I had a voice about eighth grade. And then I became obsessed with wanting to sing. And I was listening to the Mario Lanza records as well. That would be another. Listen to a lot of the Mario Lanza stuff. And uh, high school at Seton Hall in Patchogue, there was something. I was shy about speaking and singing in public, actually. And I used to sing for myself, basically. But then I had to do performances, and I and I and I got first place New York State School Music Association solo competition in high school. And there was a a complete feeling in terms of being able to sing it. I sang Vincent Yeomans without a song and won the award on that. That's the first recollection I have of that. And then in church, of course, sometimes I'm on the on different things, the Panos Angelicus or Ave Maria. or uh, Those are the early, early recollections. Later on, when I started to study, when then there were different things going on. I had a terrifying experience when I auditioned for the Metropolitan Opera on the air. Terrifying experience. Hysterical. It would have been a, a funny scene in a movie. <laughs> was it the adulation? Was it the, the recognition that you got that made you get over that fear? No, that had continued on over the years with the singing because it was such a... Uh, it's only recently now since I did the album that the complete, I had a deep need to express, I was doing that through the acting, to a minor level, the singing was a much, much stronger aspect of to myself, and I held back, I don't know why, I don't know what psychological issue I may have had, I had some kind of issue that I held back, and it wasn't until I directed this film called The Dukes, where I sang a song in it. And I started to formulate the need right now to, to, to have to sing. And I, I need to tell a story through song. I need to express myself through song. It may have been because, in a strange way, Sinatra was, you know, alive. There was no, there was no need for me to kind of like throw my hat in the ring at that time, I think. And the opera world, I was put off by the stiltedness of the acting of the opera world because I liked film. So I didn't want to become one of those stiff singers, you know what I mean? So I stayed away from that. And I didn't like the Broadway kind of falsetto tone. There's a certain kind of Broadway sound that I did not like at all. That's it's enjoyable, but it's not for me. It's not something I would want to do. So it was a complexity of different things. And then finally, with the Frank Sinatra being gone since 1998, I felt there was really no experience that he had that he gave. I didn't think there was, I thought the field was a bit open, partly because he had such a big film career and there was no singers out there really that, that had a, a big film career. Also, he was a singer that, he was a guy that said, if I'm going to break your legs, you'd believe it. Well, if I say that, you'll believe it too. And that, and that dichotomy is kind of fun, you know? Did you ever dream you would one day meet Frank Sinatra? Well, that was always a dream as a kid. You know what I mean? When you're growing up and you have, you want to sing and you want to act. To the immigrant population, Sinatra was, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk in the, in the 
in the news today and in politics about the immigrant population. Well, the Italian immigrant, all immigrants that came to America assimilated. And the Italian immigrant, um, uh, when my grandparents came, my, my father's father from Sicily and my, my mother's father from Naples, when they came, they assimilated. They spoke English. There was no press to for Sicilian or Italian. They were told to learn English, and we did, and they did, and you had to speak English in the house. So there was an assimilation of the psyche, of a, a, a national consciousness that the Italian-American did. And that music and Sinatra represented for the Italian, and Italian-Americans were low on the totem pole You got at the turn of the century. There were more lynchings of Sicilians in New Orleans in one day than any other race. They were the Sicilian Catholics, and they were murdered after they were acquitted from being accused of killing a police, a chief of police. And this is in 1891. And the New York Times, even at the time, said that the Sicilians or the Italians were lower than the Negro. This is a quote from the New York Times back at the turn of the century. I'm telling you this because this is the foment, Sinatra being born in 1915, that was with the Italians. And prior to Sinatra becoming a star, it was very hard for the Italian to kind of break through in entertainment. You had Rudolph Valentino, and then you had some guys that were terrific. Frank Capra, of course, as a director, and he started to help that cause. But Sinatra was the first big artist to come out against anti-Semitism and racial bigotry of any kind. And he gave the uh, immigrant population a respect and identity. And not just the, the Italian. He did that, for, of course. For the, that's why I say there was the Pope and Sinatra in those families, you know, in, in, in your household. I don't know if that answered your question. I, I kind of went off the beaten path on that. Well, it's a very <laughs> deep answer, actually. Yeah. On a, a more surface kind of level, what do you like about the stylings, the musical stylings of Sinatra? Well, besides his Picasso's contribution, yes, that was your answer, the influence of Sinatra. So, so yeah, there was the, the, the ability, well, look, you can consider him, my mentor was a woman named Stella Adler, and I'm in the actor's studio. Now, Stella Adler taught all the people at MGM during the 40s. She was the acting coach. She was the one in America, for people that don't know, she went directly to Stanislavski. She taught Marlon Brando. Brando speaks eloquently of Stella Adler. But she also coached all the players at MGM at a certain time. She gave, when I studied with her in the 70s, early 70s, she gave a, a seminar just on Sinatra and singing. So I have to believe, and knowing Sinatra had a hungry, even though he didn't finish high school, he had a natural thirst and a hunger for knowledge of any kind. When he did Anchors Away, he worked with Gene Kelly every day to learn dancing. So I have to know he studied acting. And what he did in his music, I consider him the first method singer. He was a singer that not only brought the bel canto technique to singing, because he studied bel canto. He studied with a, a guy, John, John Quinlan, who was from the Metropolitan Opera. And as I studied with Tito Gobi and Samuel Margulies and uh, Daniel Farrow from Juilliard, and then the, the last several years with Gary Katona, who's the, the absolute amazing, he put it all together for me, Gary Katona. Great, great folk voice builder. But, and understands the, uh, that, that, that technique, uh, the sound that I wanted. What Sinatra did was bring the bel canto technique to popular music for the first time. 
So you no longer became a crooner, which had in the top register became very light and thin. Also, the life experience that he brought to the lyric. And that was also helped by Boris Karloff, oddly enough. Sinatra met Boris Karloff in the 50s. And I think Chasen's coming out of the, they were going, passing each other through the, on the way to the bathroom, realized they lived next to each other. And Sinatra was a big fan of those horror films. There's a lot of it I saw. And he liked Boris Karloff and, and they got together. And Boris Karloff started to work with him on the lyric and on his script. They worked very diligently together. So it was Sinatra's depth of lyric, besides his phrasing, which created his phrasing. You see, he wasn't just a guy singing a song, making pretty sounds. He was a guy that was living his pain, his loneliness, his joy, his elation. And you felt that communicated more than anybody in that music. And that's why it continues to last. I played a guy... I played yesterday, Paul, for somebody, a couple of guys. I was having a quick lunch, and they recognized me, and we started to talk. Nice guys. I played them one of his songs, uh, a song of Sinatra's, Drinking Again. The guy, they had never heard that song, and he just said, man, that's just truth. He says, that's just truth. And that's, that's, that's the aspect of what you're getting when you listen to him. There's something that resonates so deeply. And for me as an artist, that's what I responded to. Besides the music and the, and, the, and, the, and the lyric was the ability to move the human soul. And when I saw him live in 1977, when I did that movie with him, Contract on Cherry Street, you asked, would I ever think I would work with him? No, I didn't. I would love to have. And then when it happened in 1977, that was like, you know, an amazing experience. We're talking with singer and actor Robert Davi. You just mentioned the movie Contract on Cherry Street. I want you to take us to that day when you shook hands with Frank Sinatra, when you first looked eye to eye with the man. What did you find him personally to be like? Absolutely a sensitive, full, fully aware human being. The way I got, I tell the story, how I, I tell a bunch of these stories in my show as well, about different things, but also about this relationship I had with him developed over the course of the years of meeting him on the film, the compassion that he had. He had an instant compassion and a recognition of, of me and was very giving in that, which was then put you at ease. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I never, I, I may have been too stupid to be frightened about anybody, you know what I mean? I was respectful, but I never put, one of the things Stella Adler said to all in life, she says, no one's above or below you whether it's a president or a king, she says, you all equate. We're all human beings, and you must equate as a human being. So that was always, that always made me, that's why when I meet people, you know, fans and stuff, and, you know, the, the press, everybody's doing a job. You know, everybody has a position in life, and they need that human dignity. You meet them with that. And that's what I got from him. He got, I got a, a compassionate person. Now, we all have our bad days in life. But I got that from him and the, the intensity of, of, of the work. And then that was the first initial response. Then over the course of filming for three months and meeting him, there were various things that happened that were very moving and very, very touching. And then over the years, of course. Wow. You recorded this album 
on the road to romance. What inspired the idea to record this album? I felt that society was framed from the inside, culturally. For me, the great American songbook, as I say, is the Shakespeare of America, the golden age of American music. It's what made the world fall in love with our country. It's what made us fall in love with each other. It got us through world wars, through depressions. The music is poetic. There's even in the harshest breakup, it's not anything violent or angry toward women, but it's romantic in its breakup. It's romantic in its sorrow and its pain. And it's, and it's, and the, and the love affair of, 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 of the emotion of love. So looking at society, looking at the divisiveness in our political system, left and right, uh, both failed America, as far as I'm concerned. I have my own points of view that are very outspoken and strong, and, you know, but that's, me. I'm not afraid of speaking my mind. The country, I felt, you have, you know, look, at, I like all kinds of music. I really have an eclectic style of music. But I felt that this music, On the Road to Romance, I didn't like when people were saying America was not an exceptional country. I didn't like hearing that from our politicians, because it's wrong. If you took America out of the equation the last 200 years, the world would be a different place. And the Great American Songbook is the amalgam of the American experience. It's the, it comes from the black jazz and jump blues artists, their struggle. It comes from the Scotch, Welsh, Irish, German, Norwegian, English, American Indian, Lebanese, Hispanic, people that have been here since the Revolutionary War. And a large portion of the American song comes from the sons and daughters of Jewish immigrants. You can say, without the Jews, there would be no American Songbook. So. All these cultures, the American cultures, the American experience, creating an art form that translates around the world. I was in Australia in June. Tremendous response. I was in Sweden. I'll be touring Europe in April and in, uh, in July. The respect and love of this music around the world. I met a guy from Latvia. Yes, it's the only music. Sinatra's the only guy I could learn English from because of, the, of course, the diction and everything else and people. But it goes on and on beyond that kind of a thing. And it's because all these nationalities, in some way, with the American experience, created that songbook. So I wanted to make a statement and bring this to the, the people that may not have listened to it before because of Goonie fans or James Bond fans or whatever else. And because I have a, a bit of an articulate rap, I, can, I say things a little perhaps differently, I wanted to do this album and a tribute to a guy that influenced my life and the lives of a lot of people in the guise of Frank Sinatra to really pay, uh, it's, it's a love letter to America and to him. And I got Phil Ramone to produce the album. Nick Tenbrook did all original. I didn't want to do karaoke. I didn't want to use original charts because of those I believe the only guy that should use those charts, perhaps, is Frank Jr. You know what I mean? Amen. Yes. You know, there are a lot of guys that use those charts, but that's their prerogative. Like I said, I did not want to do that. I may pay tribute to one or two charts just to give a thing, but I, I have all original charts and everything else. So I got Nick Kenbrook. We did that. But in the spirit, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. And I'll explain that to you. My operatic background, you have great singers. You have, to me, one of the greatest tenors of all time was a guy named Franco Corelli. Now, Corelli 
You have Pavarotti, you have UC Brierling, you have Gigli, as we talked about, and Caruso, the father of them all. But when they do a Nessun Dorma or, or a Aida or a Recondita Armonia from Tosca or, 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 or there is nobody reinventing the wheel. There's a certain requirement to the music, a certain respect to the music. I don't like when people do the American songbook and try to chop it up because they don't have the vocal prowess for it. I don't like that. So my thing was have the vocal depth to be able to pay homage to this American songbook in a style that I think has gone into now classicism. Meaning, and I used to say this in my show, which was funny, and I have all the respect for her because I love poker face. But this is, I didn't even know she was interested in the standards. But in 2011 and 2012, when I was doing my show and earlier, I used to make, say, who's going to remember Lady Gaga in 55 years? But you remember, this, or, or 100 years, you'll still be playing these songs. Sinatra will still be played. These songs will still be played. Lo and behold, she does this album with Tony Bennett. Most artists realize that the songbook is lasting. So it requires, for me, a certain kind of responsibility to it. Beautifully stated. Uh, when you look at the discography of Frank Sinatra, when you were collecting or when you were compiling what songs you were going to record, you have a man here who had a vast, probably along with Dylan, one of the biggest recorded legacies. So how did you select the songs for On the Road to Romance? Well, it's incredible, too. When you think of the depth of his discography, discography, and the great songs, one after another. You hear another gem that you, you think you've heard everything, and then you hear another five or ten songs you've never heard before and go, oh, my God. And you want to sing all of them. You know, you have to, you, and, and I wish I started again when I was 15. But I picked songs that meant something to me in some ways and also something to Sinatra's life. For instance, I've Got the World on a String was the first Nelson Riddle arranged. And it came right after his Oscar. It brought him back. In the wee small hours was something that was done with strings first time, you know, in a certain way. There was something unique about that. All the way I spoke about that, Joey Lewis, and what it meant to my parents. That's what made me go through and try to pick these songs, which I was going to choose, uh, compile them in a certain way. There's so many things about this album, On the Road to Romance, that add to the great story of what it is. One of them you mentioned earlier, the producer Phil Ramone, who mm -hmm. produced both of the Sinatra Duets albums. So tell me, what did he bring to this album? What was his addition and what were his thoughts? Because he's no longer with us. What did he think of this? Yeah. Well, he was very excited. We had a film project. We had the second album plotted out. I did a thing. I met Phil Ramone at Capitol Records. I did a demo. I did a demo at Capitol Records. And while I was there, I met Phil Ramone. I talked to him. Paula Salvatore, who runs Capitol, and Al Schmidt introduced me to. They had heard me and liked what they were hearing. You got to meet Phil Ramone, which I did. And Phil then was doing a, a play at the University of Miami, the Mancini Center, the School of Music. Shelley Berg is the dean of the Mancini School of Music, and Phil was going to do a performance of a Mario Lanza play he was putting together. And he asked me to come down there and play Lucky Luciano in this play. 
And in the meantime, he and I could work together. And, and he wanted me to then at the, at that show, at the end of that show to come out and sing a song or two to see how it was live. You know what I mean? To see how I would do. And so I did that. The reaction was kind of phenomenal when I came out and sang. And then we went in and we, the, of course, the picking of the songs. And Phil was the kind of guy that would say something, Paul, that would be, he was very gentle. He was just a great soul. Every, every, he's like Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones the same way. Has a, they just pour love out of their, their being. You know what I mean? It's just when you're around them. Phil's messages was always love Phil. You know what I mean? His text every day or whenever we would love Phil. That's, that's how he, and that's how he, he worked with you. He could say something in his silence or he could say something in terms of, I remember when he was teaching me a, a kind of a rhythm, you know, because uh, again, I was, you know, hadn't been doing this and he was trying to convey certain messages and he said, it's like riding a horse to me. He said, some of them are a nice lope, some of them are gallop, some of them are a run. He says, you got to get that feeling. It's the same physical feeling. So something as simple as that. And then when I would rehearse songs, little touches of things, he was uh, very, very gentle and supportive. And the arrangement of something or two, he would say, let's put a little more string here. Or, you know, he's, 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 he was brilliant, brilliant person. Another person who played a part in this, the sound engineer Al Schmidt, who also engineered yeah. the Frank Sinatra duets albums. Tell me a little bit about working with him. Al's another guy. Al is another one that just is on all levels of, uh, you know, these, these are these, it's, their DNA is different. It's like a fighter that, and these guys were still at the top of their game, you know. Al is still doing it, God bless him. So the micings and the, the combination of having Phil and Al working together on the album uh, was just phenomenal. And again, very supportive. He deferred to Phil, of course, you know what I mean, on, on a lot of things in terms of that. But when I worked subsequently with him on other things, Al is just the same thing. Very pragmatic. There, there is no, there is no, um, and very, very gentle and very easy. You know, I'm kind of an imposing force too. You know what I'm saying? And I know why I ain't no wallflower, Pally. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 some guys may be intimidated to tell me something. Who the hell knows? You know? <laughs> but, but I, but I try to, I, I try to breed it. And, you know, because, yeah, yeah, my roles do precede me sometimes. And, you know, Jesus. But, no, I make everybody feel like, let's, you know, let's get the best thing out of me. And Dan Wallen also uh, engineered that album, another genius. Dan Wallen done a lot of big music scores, won a bunch of Grammys and Oscars and all of that. Is there a track on the road to romance that you are especially proud of? Well, you know, that was my first album. I could see why Sinatra covered songs different times because you see different things in them you know what I mean I hear it and there are certain things I I like and certain things like, okay I could do I could do more on that I could do more on that because I just I hadn't even when I did that album I hadn't even really done any live performances yet and you learn a tremendous amount from doing it and since then I've done a bunch of live, live shows and stuff no, you listen with a critical ear. It's like when he used to listen, you hear a frog here or you hear a little thing there, you know. There's, there's always... But the overall thing, people like Mamzelle sometimes because not many people have covered Mamzelle. Yeah. 
it was a song that not many people. So I mean, I, I like and I, and and the song selection. People like the, the song selection of, of and the placement of them. So many people have praised Davi Singh Sinatra, like in the press and otherwise. Dan Aykroyd, Mickey Rourke, the great producer and musician Quincy Jones, and then Irvin Drake, one of our greats who's still with us, writers in yes. the American Songbook. This is probably a tough question, and it maybe is putting you on the spot, but what praise has meant the most? Well, I got to say, Quincy Jones. There, it, it's kind of he was very close to Sinatra, and for Q to have, and I didn't even know, he came to my show. He brought a, seventeen people to my show. He had heard my album. Someone said to me, I knew he enjoyed himself, and then someone said, Hey, Quincy wrote this on his Facebook page. Q wrote this, I, and I, I read the quote, and I, I was just, and he's been just so supportive, because I've been a huge. I met him when we did Goonies briefly through Spielberg because Spielberg was getting ready to do Color Purple at the time, and they were over at Warner Brothers. And Quincy Jones, is always I always knew of the relationship he had with Sinatra when he did the sporting club in Monte Carlo. You know you know that story, I don't know if you do. Sinatra was in Monte Carlo, and Quincy Jones had a great, great band playing in Paris, and Sinatra had not met Quincy, but asked him to come to the sporting club to do this show, and he did. And Sinatra was the first one to call Quincy Q. Hmm. And then later, yeah, he called him Q. And then five years later, he called him up to do a project. And they were very close. But even when Q3 was born, Quincy's son, Sinatra, another thing about Sinatra was his acts of generosity, his random and anonymous acts of generosity are legendary. I mean, he's helped more people I think there's no one in entertainment today that had the kind of... Sinatra was the kind of guy that if he read in the paper a wife or a, a fireman was, was you know, something something happened to the fireman or he heard a hardship story, he would say to his people right away, send them, you know what, they don't have food for Christmas. Send them, send them a turkey. You know what, send them a ham and a roast beef. You know what, send them a refrigerator and fill it up with... He was that, that kind of... He was so sensitive to human condition. But so Q3, when Q3 was born, he gave him a, a, an envelope for his college education, basically. He was very close to Quincy Jones. I asked Frank Sinatra Jr. this question, who do you like the most who is singing the American Songbook today? So I'm going to ask you, who do you like out there that is keeping this music alive? That's a, a loaded question because by my omission or admission, I'm leaving somebody and maybe hurting someone's feelings or not hurting someone's feelings. So I would say this as a blanket. Anyone that's trying to keep the music alive, the great American songbook alive, I'm all for. I wish them my heartfelt best and encourage all of them to do that. That to me is, is the most important thing. Who I personally like that's a difficult that's a difficult thing for me to, to say. And I, again, to the exclusion of someone, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to answer that question like that, Paul. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to ask you a few kind of personality questions. The first thing that pops into your head, like rapid fire, your all-time favorite actor. Oh gosh, 
Again? Well, huh? it's, it's Brando, Bogart, and, 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 and Sinatra. Enough said. <laughs> Your all-time favorite meal, if you could eat anything. Oh, gosh. There's a certain veal milanaise that I like with a, with a nice, simple salad. The way my grandmother used to make a veal cutlet. And that I like with a linguine fini, aglio olio peperoncini, con broccoli rab. I like that. I, I, you know. If you could pick a favorite cigar. Hmm. If, depending on the blend and the year, the, the Chateau Margaux series of a Don Perignon, but they no longer make them in Cuba, or hadn't, maybe they'll start up again. But that Chateau Margaux, which, funny story, Blake Edwards, I did something Pepper, and the last film Blake Edwards directed, and he knew that I liked cigars, and we were shooting for three months in the south of France, and then at Pinewood, and then at, at in Jordan. And every week, he got me a box of the Chateau Margaux, and he would say to me, he said, he, he says, here, these, I'm going to give you a box of these every year. He's got a smoke near me. He says, and every once in a while, I'll ask you for one. Not to smoke, but just so I can hold in my mouth. Because Mary Poppins doesn't want me to smoke anymore. She said, he stinks up the car. So, <laughs> so the, the Chateau Margot series. <laughs> Your all-time favorite sound in the entire world. Yeah. I've got to say, let's see. Uh, you know, the sound of Sinatra's voice. I got five kids hearing their voices, of course. The sound of that music, the sound of his that plaintive tone in his voice yeah. touches the soul. Gustav Mahler's Symphony Number no. Five, the other job. I like, you know, what I mean, there's certain things that are his. But if you could, like, you're giving a toast, for example, maybe tomorrow. What is your drink of choice for the toast? Yeah, for for any well, actually anything. Well, I had my the reason why is in the I tell this in my show. I acted out. Sinatra gave me my first Jack Daniels. It was two o'clock in the morning at a social club in Little Italy. We were shooting Cherry Street. I was standing on the side, and at the bar was Martin Gables, Julie Rizzo, Harry Guardino, a couple of other gentlemen, and I was sitting there, standing there against the radiator. And he was at the bar, and he kind of did a double take, looking at me over there by myself in the corner. And I was just observing, so I'm doing my first film with Sinatra, you know. And uh, it was kind of very, very important to me because the week I got the part, my mother was diagnosed as having lung cancer. She died by the time we finished filming. And she was, of course, enamored with, as, they, as anyone was with, you know, Sinatra. So that made her feel like my career was going to start. So I was there. And he looked at a double take. He said, Robert, have a drink. I don't drink, Mr. Sinatra. You don't drink, you're fired. I'll have what you're having. I said, I'll have what you're having. He says, come over here. He gets the bottle of Jack Daniels. He gives me two fingers of Jack, fills up with ice cubes, the rest of water. He goes, yeah, this is what you're going to be drinking. It'll get you where you want to go to without getting you hurt. <laughs> so five rehabs later, I'm still drinking the Jack Daniels. But uh, that, that would be my, my, my toast. People. I'm glad you told and my us toast, yeah. <laughs> And my toast is, is in Chandani. I was in Sicily a couple of years ago, and I was saying Chandani to the people, and the guys turned white, and 
I wondered what was wrong, and it was because, you know, one guy was 84, the other guy was 93, the other guy was 89. They were all older. They were coming up to, a, Chendani means 100 years. So I, they said to me, no, no, no more Chendani. Senza fine, which means without end. So now in my shows, when I do the toast, I do the senza fine. Nice. Kind of going back to the music, when somebody listens to you in concert, or when they listen to the record on the road to romance, what do you want someone to get from that experience of listening? Well, I want them to be moved. I want them to feel the, the authenticity of what I'm interpreting. I want, you know, there may, I remember reading about certain things, and I remember saying, God, I wish this guy was alive so I could have seen what it may have been like. And without, you can't do that with, you know, being impersonated or anything like that. You know, there's, a, there's someone who very nicely now puts on makeup to look like Sinatra. And God bless him, he's an impressionist and he does that. And that to me is, is, is something else. But the thing about Sinatra was you receive an authentic experience from him when you watch. And when people come to my show and they, they, and I see their appreciation and bringing them somewhere, that to me is what I want to be able to do. You want to be able to commune, to touch each other's hearts. It's a give and flow with the music. And, and that to me is, is you know, it's, it's all you could hope for, a bonding experience with, your, with, your, with the audience. What is the best thing about being Robert Davi? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a best thing about it. I'm just a guy, you know what I mean? I'm just, I was in Australia, and I said to them, I said, I'm a, I'm a jolly bag man with a, with a bundle of songs. I think just being human, the human experience, all of us, it's, I feel connected to everyone. I really feel a connection that we're all connected. And whether it's the Robert Dobby or the Paul Leslie or John Smith or whoever it might be, we're all in this soup together and we're all connected so there's no I don't I don't I don't go thinking about oh the best thing no I'm loving the singing the singing to me is is really where I, where I I'm, I'm so pleased that I did go back to it so that aspect of it is, is very rewarding totally open-ended for anyone who's listening anyone who's with us what would you say to them that life is filled with all kinds of detours and happiness and sadness. But the thing that we have to do is to be kind to each other, to love one another. The biggest message is to be able to love one another in some way, to find a mutual understanding. You may not agree with someone, and I'm not being, I'm not saying a terrorist that wants to blow up a building and all of that, you know what I mean? There's, there's, there's a space for us having to be, but to try to have a, to try to spread that understanding and the closeness with your friends and your family. We're here for a finite time. You know, it's like a song. It's like a song. It has its three minutes or four minutes and then it's gone. So you want to have a lingering connection to whoever you're with or whether you're friends or whoever you may encounter and know that we're human. At times you may wake up with a stomachache and you might be a little nasty. Well, you know what, let's, let's understand that. But basically it's, it's be kind to each other. My last question, 
Who is Robert Davi? Oh, God. You know what? Stella Adler one time said, don't try to figure out who you are. Know what you can do and do it like Hercules. <laughs> and, and because if you, and I went to a, you know, I did a seminar one time with an Indian, American Indian shaman, medicine man. It was a three-day workshop. And then after that workshop, you had private meetings with him. And he asked that question, who is Robert Dobby? And it took me, he kept saying, who is Robert Dobby? I said one thing. He said, who is Robert Dobby? I said another thing, who is Robert Dobby? And it went on and on and on and on and on. And I couldn't, until finally I came upon something that seemed like approaching what he was getting at. I can't really answer that question because there are so many different facets of who we are. I'm a guy that loves to sing. I'm a father. You know, I mean, there's so many different aspects to it. I'm a lover. But I don't even know who I am. Thank you very much for sharing with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Paul. It was a joy. I continue all the great work you're doing. And you as well. Tomorrow night, it's New Year's Eve. Yeah. I will have two fingers of Jack for you. (laughs) Two fingers of Jack with ice cubes and a bucket glass and then the rest water. You got it. All right. And when I make a talk doing a thing in New York tomorrow night, the private club, and I'll remember you when we make that toast. Bless you. All right. And bless you, and here's, here's looking at you. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Paul Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>